The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. May Christ be glorified here in our midst and by what results from this morning. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Last Monday evening, God was enthroned in his heaven, reigning sovereign over all of the events of the universe and of this world in particular. He was there controlling all things, never making a mistake, never unaware. I know that was the case on Monday evening because it is always the case. That's who he is. Day in, day out, rain or shine, bad day or good. Additionally, it was a really good day. I don't know if you remember last Monday, but it was beautiful. Not too hot, no humidity, no bugs to speak of. And we had great seats. We could see the whole field laid out there before us. And if we would just lift up our eyes a little bit, we could see the mountains stretched out behind left field and behind center field. Perfect seats. Additionally, Bartolo Colon, last year's American League Cy Young Award winner, was in town to pitch for the Salt Lake Bees. He was here rehabilitating from an injury. So we got to watch big league pitching even. It was excellent. There just no problems. Anybody could see that. It was perfect, nothing to complain about, nothing at all. Which is why one of my daughters was a little puzzled as she looked at me, watched me, and she finally asked, how come you're not happy? I didn't answer. Other things happened and the question was dropped, but it's been on my mind this week as I've been studying to preach this last passage in the book of Habakkuk. How come I'm not happy? Part of me wants to say, how come I'm not happy? Because I have just spent far more money than hot dogs and pretzels and soda should ever cost. <laughs> and I'm spending more time than I care to as I sit here bite by bite trying to make sure that other little ones eat all of their hot dogs and pretzels and drink their soda without spilling it. Well, in the midst of that, I'm trying to gulp down my own food rather than enjoying it and maybe even perhaps take in a little bit of the game, which in my opinion is why we came here in the first place. That's why I'm not happy. That's what part of me wants to say, but it wouldn't be true. Habakkuk 3 verses 17 through 19 make that clear. The problem is not out there. The problem is not in the seats next to me, it's in here. Nothing outside of me can force me to be grumpy or to fall into sinful anger and frustration. It can force me into a foul mood. That can't happen. Now, I'm not talking about we shouldn't ever experience emotion. I'm not talking about the, the sorrow that should come to us, for instance, when a loved one passes away. The Bible says that we are to weep with those who weep. We are to feel emotions. But I'm talking about the sinful, foul mood that came over me, that, that often comes over me and you, when any of a thousand things happen in our lives. When those circumstances outside of me happen, how come I'm not happy? Today's text has something important, some important things to say about that. This morning we come to the conclusion of the book of Habakkuk. So this sermon may, here and there, have a little bit more review than might be customary. You'll recall that we, get, we began about six weeks ago with Habakkuk questioning God, complaining really in chapter 1, saying, How long, O Lord? How long are you going to let this go on, all this wickedness here amongst your people? Are you going to just let that go on forever? And, and then you tell me that you're going to bring Babylon to deal with that? How long are you going to let that go on? All of their wickedness. Is that just going to go on forever with no end? Will Babylon be allowed to continually, mercilessly kill nation after nation? 
That's the last verse of chapter 1. And throughout chapter 1 and into the beginning of chapter 2, God has been answering Habakkuk, and he says, No, I'm not going to let that go on forever. Look, in bringing Babylon, I'm grabbing a hold of the hands of the clock of redemptive time. Redemptive history is moving. I'm moving it ahead. In bringing Babylon, I'm putting away this old system based on king and priest and sacrifice and law. And I'm beginning a new system centered on Christ. I'm doing that. Trust me. That time is coming. It will come soon. It may not seem like it, but it's coming. In the meantime, let me tell you just a little bit about what that's going to mean for the proud, those who are not upright in heart within. Also, Habakkuk, write this down, please. Write it down and pass it on in the midst of these years of hardship. Between the sanctifying discipline of today and the full deliverance of tomorrow, in the midst of these years right here, get this, my righteous ones will find life in me by faith. Write that down. Chapter 2, verses 3 to 5 snapshot, the, the thumbnail, if you will, of, of the big vision that God gave to Habakkuk. And the rest of chapter 2 contains five statements of woe that are the implications for the proud, given that reality. Then when he gets to chapter 3, he get, that contains Habakkuk's fullest expression of the vision that he saw. God showed him this, and he wrote it down in a psalm. We looked at most of that last week. We'll finish it this morning. Because chapter 3 is all one unit of thought, it will be helpful for us to glance back over it so that we can gather it all in and get it. So we'll move back through that a little bit, but before we do that, let me read the passage for this morning, chapter 3, and I'll begin in verses, verse 16, read through the end. I'll be reading in the English Standard Version. So Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. I hear... And my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Before we move on to take a look at two main points that I'm going to want to pull out of this passage, let's walk back through it to make sure that we properly understand it. The very last phrase in verse 19 is the formal bookend to chapter 3, verse 1. It's the, beginning, the official beginning and the official end of the psalm. So it tells us that all of chapter 3 is a psalm. God showed Habakkuk something and then he gathered in words to try to record it for us, for his contemporaries, and for all future generations after him. This is a psalm for us. It's meant to be sung by us. It has four stages. We looked at last week. Stage one is in verse two. It's the opening request for help. God, in the midst of the years of coming hardship, in the midst of the years of pain, will you give us help Will you help sustain our faith that we need to cling to you and find life? Help! That's his request. And then in verses 4 to 15, that's the second and third stages, God gives him that help. The heart-sustaining help that he gives him, notice this, is centered on one awesome reality. God himself come to save his people, to save his anointed one. These verses are full of, we looked at this last week, they're just full of stunning imagery of an awesome God come to save. It's meant to blow us away. Sadly, though, we often read through that, maybe even skim through that, 
sit down and yawn. Ah, oh, you know, okay, a big God. Seen that before. Sounds like some other stuff I've seen. That is too bad. That is too bad because he has put himself to us, to us like this to strike us, to grab a hold of us. It is meant to be great help to your heart as you struggle amidst hardship to see God like this. To see him in his vast supremacy, reigning in sovereign might. It's supposed to strike you. It struck Habakkuk. He didn't sit down and yawn. He collapsed into his chair. He can hardly hold himself together in verse 16. Moving into the fourth stage, the response to all this begins in verse 16 and moves into our passage this morning. He looks, he takes all this and he looks at it and he's overwhelmed by what he has seen about the nature of God. And as he compares that to what he knows is coming, the hard reality that's coming, it threatens to undo him, but it doesn't. He turns his heart towards God and sits down internally at rest and says, I will wait for God to deal with this hardship that's coming to me. And it's going to be hard. Troubles are going to be devastating. Verse 17. The Babylonians will invade. And look what's going to happen. He says, When everything else is gone, absolutely everything, absolutely gone, at that time, that's the reality that I'm facing. That's what verse 17 is saying. To grasp the desperation of this situation, we have to think a little more in, in terms of agriculture. We need to be a little more agrarian in our thinking here. Picture yourself as being in a society that's based on the land. Notice the progression here in the subject matter. There's nothing on the fig tree or on the vine. That means there will be no sweet fig cakes, no tasty treats, no wine drink at festivals or parties. Okay, well, we can do without dessert, I guess. That's okay. And we can drink water if we have to. Less fun, but that's fine. We'll make it. However, the olive crop then fails. And the fields produce no food. That means there's no oil for ceremonial cleansing. There's no oil for cooking even which I guess is fine because there isn't anything to cook. There's no grain anywhere. That means there's no meal, there's no bread, there's no cereal, there's no fodder for the animals, which I guess is okay because there aren't any more animals. The fields are empty, the stalls are empty. Nothing at all. This is a true catastrophe. To talk about no dessert and no wine is one thing, but no food at all means that famine is imminent. It's hard to overestimate the magnitude of this problem. He's looking ahead. Habakkuk is looking ahead at the coming of those wicked ones, to use chapter 1's analogy, that will swallow up all of the nations like a fisherman hauling in catch after catch of fish, slaughtering the nations. He's looking ahead at that, to those coming who will plunder all the nations, who will shed the blood of the innocent, do violence to man and to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them, to use chapter 2's language. That's what he's looking at. Though the fig tree should not blossom, though there be no fruit on the vines, though the fields yield no food and there be no flocks or herds at all, though there be nothing at all in this life, Nothing but great danger and imminent starvation. Nothing but marauding warriors and the constant threat of death or slavery. Nothing at all except that, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. To which I respond, say, what? What are you talking about? I will rejoice, I will exult, I will take joy? That is remarkable. He faces, he looks square at the harshest realities of life. And there's no longer any questioning here. There's no longer any challenging or complaining to God. 
He's not complaining about the way that God has determined that things will go. He accepts God's ways in this world. Realize that this is what's going to happen. But notice, in accepting this, he's not just resigning himself to some sort of passive acceptance of a cruel fate. He's not just leaning back and saying, well, that's what God says is going to happen. Who am I to fight against God? So I guess I'll just have to sit here. Woe is me. I take my cruel fate from an unjust and capricious God. No, he doesn't respond like that. Nor does he summon up personal courage to like fight against this situation or to fight against the Babylonians. To use some modern cliches, he doesn't stand up and take it like a man. Or the opposite of that, go down swinging. There's no bravado here in his statements. There's no complaining. There's no passive resignation. There's no courageous resistance, whether it be false or true. Only joy. And he is very clear about it. In the original language, in a couple of different ways, verse 18 is underlined and highlighted. He says, I myself. There's an emphasis here on his personal reaction. This isn't theory about what people should do in general. Not a, you know, one really should. No, it's very personal. I myself. He owns this. And it is emphatic. The grammatical form of the words rejoice and take joy, it's a form that stresses resolve. He's almost like giving a command about himself. He says, I myself will surely rejoice. Take it to the bank. I will have joy here. It's going to happen in me. I'm committing myself to it. I will have a heart that is full and deeply happy and delighted. Joyous even. Delighting, exalting. I will look right at verse 17 and I will patiently wait for more to come. And in the meantime, joy is going to dominate me in here. It's going to happen. I know it. I'm sure of it. And again I exclaim, say what? How in the world can anybody be so emphatic about rejoicing in the midst of verse 17 kind of hardship? Amidst the years of verse 17 type drought and famine and military attack and plague. Amidst years like that, how can anyone rejoice? I ask that, and Habakkuk responds to me, Brother, it's what I'm looking at. All of what I'm looking at. Yes, I see verse 17, and I see more also. I will rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. There. There is rock-solid ground for exaltation, a delight that does not fade and cannot be taken away from me. Note very carefully, the joy is not to be derived from what God gives us. At the moment, what God is giving Habakkuk is invaders and famine. His joy is not in the gifts themselves, it is in the giver. Awesome is he. There's nothing else to hope in. Nothing at all. Only God. And he is more than enough for exaltation and joy to arise in and to dominate the prophet's heart. In fact, when that happens, what Habakkuk finds is that God himself is his strength. Verse 19. Strength that works in Habakkuk to make him to scale the heights to make him like a sure-footed deer that climbs higher and higher and higher on his own personal challenges until he conquers them. He's using words here, borrowed from David, who used these in what has become for us Psalm 18. But he's used them here with a twist. In Psalm 18, David is using these same words to describe how God has strengthened him to triumph over, to defeat, his, to gain physical victory over his enemies. He's going to fight them and vanquish them. That's how God has helped him to scale the heights. 
But Habakkuk's usage here is spiritual. He's turned it. He has no illusion that he's going to defeat Babylon, that he's going to defeat famine. But spiritually, he will. Physically, the reality is going to be such out here that it's going to be very hard, but in here he's going to have victory. God will be his strength inside, enabling him to mount up and climb to the heights and triumph. Victorious, even amidst physical defeat. And that is what life is. Real life. That's wholeness and peace and joy amidst all kinds of stuff out there in here he has life it's what he was promised what the righteous all were promised back in chapter 2 that they could find that life by faith in God and Habakkuk has found it and he's changed chapter 1 to chapter 3 he's changed he found life. And that's where the psalm ends. That's where the book ends. On this note of hope amidst outward devastation. What are we to take away from this response? What are we to draw out of this final passage in the book? Well, there's some things that we've already seen as we walked through that passage but there's two things, there are two things that I want to draw out and make explicit in regards to joy. Things that we need to, to make explicit so that we understand them. One's theoretical and one's very practical. These two things. We start with a theoretical one. It tells us where joy comes from, where we can find it. And as such, it has much to say to our lives as we go about living day to day, going through hardships, going to ball games. It's a lot to say to us. Here it is. A Godward life brings joy amidst all kinds of trials. A Godward life. A life lived like this, so to speak. Looking up, focused, intent on God, centered on Him, grabbed by Him. That kind of living produces joy down here. Come what may, through all kinds of trials, joy still results. Joy, that deep heart delight. It's sometimes easier to feel than to verbally describe it's not just happiness. It's not just pleasure. It's not just the absence of any negative dominating emotion. It's full, real, sorrow conquering, perspective giving goodness that lives in here. The center of your being. It sits over top of other emotions such that the Bible can describe a person who is joyful as being able to sorrow but ever rejoice. This is the dominant one. Ever rejoicing. Sometimes joy, when you experience it, is so satisfying it almost makes you cry. In verse 17, Habakkuk looks squarely at the worst of all possible circumstances for himself and for his country and then says, verse 18, and yet I will have joy. Not ignoring the hardship, just putting something else over top of it. In the midst of the years of devastation, amidst the tumult of invasion and famine, amidst failing health and failing relationships, amidst the death of loved ones and other tragedies in life, at those times we are meant to look squarely at them and still find and know joy over top of them. But let me set aside for a moment the, the calamities of life and talk about some of the drudgeries. The day in, day out stuff that seems like it's going to kill us. Diapers and laundry and nagging, mindless work, difficult bosses, co-workers, traffic, bills. 
the monthly budget that is always short. The parents that don't understand, the kids that don't obey, the spouse that doesn't care. If the calamities of life are a knife to the heart that shock us, then these drudgeries are more like the constant picking and pulling at a hangnail. It just kills you after a while. During those things too, amidst all kinds of trials in life, we are still meant to find and know joy over top of them. We all know that because we all search for joy. There's something in us that says, find it, look for it. We grasp after things that we try to substitute in there like pleasure or just simple happiness. The problem is that all of us in our fallen states, we all are desperately searching for joy in all the wrong places. We turn to all the various idols that were condemned in chapter 2. Not statues of wood and stone, bejeweled and gold overlaid. Not necessarily just those things, but all the resources of the world that we take and in first in our minds and maybe with our hands we fashion them to be something that we will trust to give us happiness and joy and contentment and delight. We put our hope in that thing right there. We worship it. For me at the baseball game, I was believing I'd set my mind and my heart on, I'd fastened my heart to this idea that internal rest and joy was connected to a quiet night at the ballpark where I could sit back, relax, eat some food and beverage, and enjoy a nice ball game. Now, whether that was realistic given the fact that all the family was along, that's not the question. <laughs> that's not the point. The point is my frustration and anger when it didn't happen. I got squeezed and stuff started to ooze out around the corners and around the edges that showed what was going on in here. My anger and frustration reveals my heart and reveals what my heart was counting on for joy. The problem is in here. Peace and quiet was my hope. If I can have that, I'll have joy. I don't have it, so I'm angry. So look through my life in general. It's kind of a theme. It's another one of the idols that I frequently come back to. Peace and quiet. Really want that. Nothing wrong with it. Problem is wanting it in the wrong order. Wanting it too much. Woe to me. And the people like me who trust in the things of this world, they are fleeting. At best, temporary satisfactions. We must not look for joy ultimately in the things of the world. We may find it here for a while, but all of these things that we can put our arms around and trust in, everything down here, it will all eventually fail. It'll collapse we live in a sin-cursed world and everything comes apart eventually. And often those things then turn and become then the sources of sorrow and pain for us that we are trying to escape. Careers, relationships, your physique, all of that stuff, all changes often for the worse. Woe to you if you lean your hearts on these things, looking for ultimate joy in the circumstances and happenings of life. Are you seeking joy in obedient kids and caring family members? I hope not because they won't always obey and they won't always care. Do you need, must you have sufficient money and time if your heart is to be full of joy and have sweet delight? I hope not because there will never be enough. You fill in the blank there, whatever it is that you're leaning on. Woe to you if you chase after these things. Now note carefully, these things in themselves, many of them are just fine. Many of them, in fact, even further than that, are blessings given from God to us that we are supposed to enjoy in the proper place, in the right order. 
How you respond to their absence tells you if you've got them in the right order or not. Peace and quiet is fine. But when I get angry when it's gone and I sin, that tells me I was leaning on that. I had it in the wrong order. Psalm 16 tells us that the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. The sorrows, not the joys. You run after another God and seek joy there and what gets multiplied to you is sorrow. Only the life oriented towards God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The only God who is. Only when He holds center position in our thoughts and our loves, only then does joy result, no matter what the circumstances. I'm going to hold off on addressing practically how we can help put Him at the center of our hearts. We'll come to that in a little bit in the second main point. But for right now, I'm just trying to make the theory, the, the theology, if you will, explicit. Do you see that in this text? Awful catastrophic circumstances are still meant to be met with joy. And they will only be met with joy when the sufferer is God-focused, is looking Godward, when he's God-enthralled in his or her thinking. In other words, when God himself is the joy you can look at the catastrophe and say, the thing that I'm banking my heart on, I still have. He's not changed. In fact, I'm seeing more of him now as he sustains my heart. He's an amazing God. that He can uphold me even within all of this. I, I feel like I have even more of him now, not less. That's how you find joy there. It's the connection here in this passage. This joy-filled life is a life that Habakkuk was promised in chapter 2. The life that by faith mounts up and triumphs no matter what happens. That's the theory. There's one more element to the theory, though, I need to introduce. So far, it's been all about me, my joy, and it's a good thing. It is a good thing that God has, in this situation, offered me real joy when He's offered me Himself. He hasn't offered me pain in Himself. He's good. He's good to have. That's a good thing. However, we also need to note, we also should note, because this is really interesting, that what is offered to me as my ultimate good, my ultimate joy, God dominating my thinking, is also at the same time God's greatest glory. They're the same thing. That great good for me is His glory as He gains possession of my heart and my focus and affection is set on Him and He dominates me. He gets to boast to all of the creation all around. Look at this one who loves me. Look at Him. I am good and glorious and He agrees and He loves it. How did that happen in Him? Because we all know that human nature is to reject me says God, and turn away and run and fight against me. But not this one, not these ones. They love me. I'm the center of their hearts. They worship me. How did that happen? I did that. Wow, I did that. I myself have done a great work in them. I've changed them. They didn't just decide to change themselves. I did it. Look at that. I've saved them. I saved them in my anointed in the Christ. I have taken out their hearts of stone, to use Ezekiel's words, and I've put in a heart of flesh, and I've moved them, and they love me. They joy in me. They exult in me, Father, Son, and Spirit. The gospel is love-changing, joy-giving, grace-glorifying in all that it is. God himself does all this work. He comes down to earth as a man. God come in flesh. God gone to the cross. God dying for sin to satisfy his wrath. And then for all of those who come to him in faith, God become the center of our loves. God the source of our joy. 
It is God. We glorify God when we enjoy Him. And the fact that we are glorifying Him by enjoying Him, that also glorifies God. Because He's the one who changed what we have a taste for. God is most glorified when we enjoy Him passionately. All the work and all of this is to the praise of His glorious grace. God changes our loves and we are given a rock-solid source of joy. God Himself. These two things work together. Our joy in His glory and they're marvelous. What a marvelous, wise, stunning plan. What a marvelous, wise, stunning God. That's what you're meant to take out of this. That's the theory. To understand that he has done a marvelous thing and to worship him for that and then to know that if you are a Christian, true joy is always available to you. It doesn't depend on the kids acting in a certain way or circumstances working out just so. The Godward life brings joy amidst all kinds of trials. You have the ability to and must daily live with God-soaked minds. This makes sense. Perhaps it's a little familiar to you because we've talked about different aspects of it before. The problem is that we don't always live like this. My baseball game experience is by no means an isolated one. Not in my life, I don't think in yours either. So what do we do with this? Knowing the theology, knowing the theory is critical because if you don't know where to look, you'll never look there. But knowing where to look doesn't mean that you will. What do we do with this? It brings us to the practical point, the second point. Habakkuk pronounces, <clears throat> Habakkuk pronounces his end position. Amidst all this devastation, he's going to have joy. But how did he get there? That's the practical part. Here it is. The Godward life of joy is built. I use that word built there to emphasize it doesn't come like this. The process, a continual lifelong process. The Godward life of joy is built by discipline and sovereign grace. How you get to this place of rejoicing in God amidst all circumstances is a combination of a process that is a combination of personal, wise discipline, rigor, and ultimately over all of it, grace. The discipline is seen in the grammar of verse 18. Remember the emphatic nature there. I myself will surely rejoice in the Lord. Habakkuk is committing himself to joy. He's not just talking about it in a theoretical sense. You know, boy, I'd love to be joyful. Wouldn't it be swell if I could rejoice? He's not lackadaisical in this. He's committed to it. He will hunt until he gets it. And he's really clear about what he will hunt. He's going to hunt joy by hunting the Lord. He isn't going to hunt peace and quiet, or more money, or a bigger house, or more sex, or more golf, or video games, or food. He will hunt God himself. Not physically, of course. He's going to hunt him in here in his heart, in his mind, on the inside. The internal man is going to hunt God until he gets him. And then he's going to find him and he's going to fasten his affection on him and lash himself to him. The first step, if you're going to do that, the first step is that we, he and we have to figure out what our heart is currently fastened to and unhook it so that we can hook it on to God. You need to figure this out. Don't skip this first step. It's important. Perhaps you can think of this process of, of discerning what you're hooked onto. Think of it like the game Jenga. Do you know that game Jenga? It's a, I've seen it by some other names too, but it's a game with little wooden blocks that three by three you stack on top of one another until you make a little tower about that high. And then play begins. You go around amongst the players and one by one you pull out a block from the tower and place it on the top. And at first it's really easy. You can pull out anything. 
pull out stuff and you stack it up, pull out, stack it up, and it goes around. But eventually, you can picture this, the tower's getting taller and there's a lot of holes in it now. And so it starts to get a little precarious. And you touch things and they wobble. And eventually, somebody grabs a hold of a block, starts to pull it a little bit, and the tower twists and turns and collapses, falls. What causes you to fall? That's how you can find what you're leaning on. You can find where your weight rests when you observe yourself and note what causes me to fall. You teeter and twist and fall into fear over money issues. When money gets tight, do you find yourself sinning in your attitude? Well, you might look then to see, am I leaning on money and the possession of money and trusting it to sustain me and be the joy and hope in my life? The evidence says maybe. Or do you collapse into anger or isolation when you get embarrassed? Maybe what you're leaning on is a good self-reputation and some pride or esteem there. For me, I really want a peace and quiet. And I often get a little snippy and depressed when that block is pulled out of my life. Whatever it is, the basic question that you need to ask yourself is, Self, why am I so downcast right now? What's going on in here? Why am I so depressed, angry, afraid, stubborn, etc.? Fill in the sinful response there. Why? If you put your finger on that and you can observe it and notice it, you say, ah, that's what I'm hoping in. That's what I'm looking at for my joy. It's what I'm fastened to right now. Requires discipline to do this. To observe yourself, to be rigorous with yourself because yourself, your fallen nature is going to want to cloud the issue. Blame it on somebody else, something out there and not let you point it in here. It takes discipline to observe. That's what you're, that's what you're leaning on. Unfasten from there and then you need to turn by discipline and fasten it to the Lord. But where do we find Him? Where do we see Him? There's a clue here about where we see the Lord. He's called, in verse 18, the God of my salvation. The awesome nature of God is seen in this chapter and throughout the whole Bible, in fact, in what he does to save his people. Exercising discipline to fasten to God involves exercising discipline in soaking your mind in all the different facets of God's marvelous plan of redemption, the way God has worked to save us. This is what Habakkuk is trying to show us here in chapter 3. What led to this response? What's it in response to? This awesome nature of God come to save his people. That's the heart of the psalm. That's what he's trying to teach us here. It's also what Paul's trying to teach us in the book of Ephesians. If you were here when we were preaching through Ephesians, try to load some of chapter 1, 2, and 3 into your mind again. And think about what Paul does for verse upon verse upon verse. He holds up to us God. Awesome. Come to save. He is the kind of God. He's the kind of God who will select and save people. Freeing them from their bondage to sin, that they couldn't take care of themselves. He's that kind of God. Not saving us by any merit in ourselves, but totally by grace. He's the type of God who will work in you to change your heart, to remove your guilt of sin, to remove the barrier between you and Him so that you can have Him back. He's that kind of God. He's the kind of God who, though glorious, would humble himself and come to earth as a man and embrace the cross, embrace death, so as to have a people for himself, clean and forgiven. He's that kind of God. He's the kind of God, then, who wouldn't be held by death, but has such vast power over it, displayed in his resurrection, and in that same power made available to us as people. He's the kind of God who wouldn't then leave us alone but comes to dwell inside of us. God the Spirit living in us and forming us into a people. 
a body for each other, to minister to one another and to minister to the outside world, reminding us and them to turn to and to keep turning to this glorious Jesus. He's that kind of God. He is the God of salvation, blessing His people with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In Jesus, in this anointed one, He has worked a great salvation from sin. And He will return to work again a great, great salvation from the very presence of sin that will happen. Bathe your minds in these truths. It involves discipline. You must exercise discipline. Behold your God in them. Speak of them when you rise up and when you sit down, when you come in and when you go out. You must exercise discipline to keep this God of salvation on your brain. It takes discipline to stop looking here, to figure out what you're fastened to, and to turn away from it, to repent of it, because it's sin. And it takes discipline to turn to and to fasten yourself to the God of salvation, to fasten the inside of you by bathing your mind in these things. It cannot happen if you don't avail yourself, if you don't use the means by which he connects to us. Scripture and prayer and fellowship. You hunt animals in their habitat. I'm never going to kill an elephant in my living room. Never. Never, never, never. And I will never successfully fasten my God, my, my God continually to my mind by doing nothing about it. It will never, never, never happen. It takes discipline to gaze at Him. And then to find, when I find myself lapsing back to repent and do it again. And then five minutes later when I'm lapsing back to repent and do it again. Discipline. You have to pay attention to yourself. Watch what you're doing. Maybe, maybe listening to music helps you. Things that run through your mind. You know, music gets in us and runs through us long after we've stopped listening to it. It can be helpful. It helps me. That's one of the things I use. Songs that hold the gospel in them in a way that's catchy for me. Scripture memory is helpful, maybe. Maybe listening to the, the Bible, the New Testament on CD in your car as you drive to and from work. See a table about that in a few weeks, I think, where we'll have the New Testament on CD for you if you want to listen to it. Fellowshipping with others that is gospel and not gossip-oriented. All kinds of things throughout your day and throughout your week can help you keep this God on your brain. You must exercise discipline. But that's not enough. The discipline itself will not suffice. Ultimately, we are dependent on the same sovereign grace that saved us, that same grace we are dependent on to sanctify us. Habakkuk prayed and prayed and prayed, and then God decided to answer. God decided to show him a vision. Habakkuk didn't make God do that. Habakkuk didn't rub the prayer lamp just the right way, and then God had to show up doesn't happen. God is God. We are not. God decides to reveal himself when he wants. So what we need to do is we need to avail ourselves of the means and pray, pray, pray that he will show himself. He will show himself here. Read chapter 3. He's right there. But there are times in my life when I read that and I yawn and say, oh, I've read that before a bunch of times. But it requires discipline to say, no, Steve, don't rest there. That's not good enough. You need to see God there, not just read English words. And so I pray, God, show yourself to me, please. And I read again. And maybe it doesn't happen that day because God has said, not today, trust me with nothing today. No further information today. Trust me. So I come to him tomorrow or later in the day. The discipline part there is always hoping in the grace to open up the heavens, to give me eyes to see. That's Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, remember? God, open the eyes of their heart. They can see you. 
We pray that that should be our prayer at all times, continually. God, be gracious to us and show yourself. It needs to be our prayer. The Godward life of joy is built hour by hour, day by day, by discipline and sovereign grace. Pursue it for your own good, for your own joy, and for God's great glory. We're at the end of the psalm, the end of the book. If I were to sum up Habakkuk in a couple of sentences, here's what I'd say. The life of joy amidst hardship is available through persistent faith in God. I'll say that again. The life of joy amidst all hardship is available through persistent faith in God. Seek Him, trust Him, and live. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.